Amen. All right, take your Bible, 1 Peter chapter 4. I'm proud of you. Proud you came back. I know the last couple of weeks have been a little discouraging and rugged at times, um, but you know what? Again, I say this a lot, and I'll say it again. I'm just the mailman. I didn't write this. I'm delivering the mail. Um, Peter is trying to be very specific and clear with his people. He's trying to remind them of some of the things that they are uh, in store for. He doesn't want any surprises. I don't want you to be surprised. I want us to understand what it is that we have in our future. Um, but today, um, I'm just a little more aware of how um, we can end up... <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to keep moving my water around until I find a place to completely confuse everybody. Um, I want us to leave here encouraged. I hope the last few weeks have been encouraging, but today I really, um, as I was preparing, and I shared this with staff on Wednesday as we were doing our devotions through this, I really felt God pulling me and tugging on me to remind you guys that although suffering is in fact coming, we're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. We are in the hands of the one who controls it all. We are in the hands of the one who loved us before there wasn't us. We can trust him, and that's what we're going to drive through today. So let's start reading in, in, in verse 12, 1 Peter chapter 4. Oh, actually, you know what? Let me do this real quick, a little commercial. Um, I don't usually do this, but I think it's important. So today, I'm going to finish chapter 4, and in the next two weeks, we're actually going to jump out of 1 Peter. Uh, for the next two weeks, I believe it's very important for us uh, to spend a few minutes praying and looking at what Scripture teaches us, what God would have us to know as Christians when it comes to the political world that we live in. So next week, I'm going to preach a message that I had prepared to preach in March, it was like March 18th, somewhere around there. It was the week we got shut down because of COVID. And I don't know if you remember, but the week before I was going to preach it, I warned you all that I was preaching on politics, and then the church got shut down. So I don't know which one of you pulled that off, but I was pretty impressed. Uh, but that's, that's the plan. We're going to work through Mark chapter 12. We're going to look at what Jesus says when they come to him and say, so who, are we supposed to pay our taxes, render to Caesar or to Caesar, God or to God's? We're going to look at that next week. Then the following week, this sound, but I don't care who wins the election, I do, but for our purposes on Sunday, I don't care what happens, because it's not going to change what we're going to do on Sunday, November 8th. So Sunday, November 8th, we're going to celebrate the one king, because there's only one. It doesn't matter who wins an election or who loses an election. There's one king, and he is forever king. He is eternal king, and no one's pushing him off the throne. So, so let, me, let me, that's what we're going to focus on. I've got to be careful. I'm going to get carried away and preach that now, which I shouldn't. But, so we'll do this today. We're going to take two weeks off of 1 Peter. Then we'll come back. We'll finish 1 Peter. And then it's Christmas time. Is that crazy? <laughs> All right. On that note, now that I depressed you all. <laughs> 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Oh, it's going to be a rabbit trail morning. I hope you're excited. I can feel it. 1 Peter 4.12, dear friends, <laughs> don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. If you're ridiculed for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Let none of you suffer as murderer, thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. 
For the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household, and if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who disobey the gospel of God? And if a righteous person is saved with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing what is good. So I could have just focused on verse 19 for the last three or four months because verse 19 is 1 Peter, the entire message of 1 Peter in one verse. What, what Peter says is I want you, those who suffer, so he's talking to the, those people who he loves, who he's pastoring, who he's leading, who are going through difficult times, and he's talking to you. And if you're not suffering, it's because you're just not suffering yet. So then the, those who are suffering, according to God's will, <laughs> it's not a mistake, it's not an accident, it's not blind fate that has led you into season of suffering, this is according to God's will, you have been called to this. Entrust themselves, let those who suffer according to God's will, let them entrust themselves just as Jesus did, just as many of the Old Testament saints did, we'll talk about that this morning, entrust themselves where? To a faithful creator, to remember that the one they are trusting, the one who had the power to create everything we know and see with his breath. The one you're trusting is the one who has the character to remain faithful for all of eternity. You entrust yourself to him while doing what is good. In the context of suffering, we're to keep on doing what is right, not using it as a lazy excuse to do what we want to. That's First Peter in a nutshell right there. But let me, let me be clear. If you hear the word suffering and, and you think that you're going through hard times, that equals the suffering he's talking about, you're missing the point. He's not talking uh, about living in a fallen world that is affected by disease and death and sickness and, and evil people. He's not talking about that kind of suffering. He's talking about suffering for the cause of Christ. And he says, so if you are, are suffering for the cause of Christ and it comes your way and it happens, don't be surprised. That's what he says right there. Dear friends, don't be surprised. For so many of us, when things like this come our way, we're like, I can't believe this would happen to me. This is amazing. Why would this happen to me? Right? Now, just by way of review, we've used all of these verses in the past. Luke 21, verse 17, Jesus said, you'll be hated by everyone because of my name. Philippians, Paul says, it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. 2 Timothy 3.12, in fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Why are we surprised? It's like the kid who goes to class, and the prof is like, it's time for the test, and the kid's like, test? What test? You know, the one the prof's been talking about for weeks? Next Friday, there's a test. Next Friday, there's a test. Hey, on Friday, there's a test. On Friday, there's a test. Tomorrow, there's a test. The kid shows up like, test? I didn't know we had a test. What do you mean you didn't know you had a test? He's been telling you for weeks. So what happens is when you're not prepared for the test, you don't study or you study the wrong or incomplete information. So um, I had a study crew when I was going to uh, get my master's degree. I had a study crew that we would all kind of help each other. And I was taking a Daniel exam, a Hebrew exam out of the book of Daniel, which was like, as exciting as it sounds, actually, but I got to the exam, and I had gotten the information from the study crew, what they said, this, was, this, is our, this is our study notes, so I studied the study notes, and I got to the exam, 
and they, the prof handed out the final face down. Okay, it's like, okay, Lord, help me figure this one out because this is, this is going to be a hard one. And I flipped the exam over, and there was 12 short answer questions. And it was like, question one, not only did I not know the answer, I didn't recognize the question. I had no idea what it was talking about. It's like, what? Question two, same thing, all the way down through question 12. On the front page, the information didn't even look remotely familiar. Like, it wasn't like I had forgotten to study it. It was I had never seen it before. And I'm looking around hoping that somebody's like, I'm sorry, prof, you gave us the wrong test. I was praying that was the case. It was not the case. So I did. I put the test back on its face, and I put my head down on my desk. There was some praying going on, asking for a miracle or the rapture. Either would have been fine at that point. It's like, all right, so I, maybe if I just push ahead, turn the page, it's like question 13. Oh, wait, I know that one. And then the rest of the exam, I hammered it. So I'm like, I must have just, must have just blacked out there at the beginning. So I go back to the first page, still nothing. So my prof handed it back the finals. I saw him in the hallway. He's like, hey, Frank, can I talk to you for a second? I'm like, yeah. It was Dr. McLean. And he goes, man, okay, so I'm just going to be honest with you. It looked like somebody completely different took the first page of your test than the rest of your test. I'm like, Doc, I never even saw that, those, those, those questions before. And his comment to me was, you need a better study crew. Which was nice, because then it wasn't my fault, it was their fault. If you're shocked at the suffering you're going through, you need a better study crew. You need a better study crew. Don't allow yourself to get sucked into the days of this study crew's day, where they say things even, even as dramatic and radical as, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you must not accept suffering as part of the will of God. They say that. No follower of Jesus Christ will actually suffer persecution. No follower of Jesus Christ will actually suffer ill health. No follower of Jesus Christ will suffer financially. D does that sound anything like James 1-2? Consider it a joy, my brothers and sisters, when you experience various trials. Don't let suffering throw you. And then he says to us, don't be ashamed. Verse 16, if anybody suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. I mean, if you're being persecuted for loving and following Jesus, there should be no, no shame in that. It talks about, um, uh, blah, 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 let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. I mean, what's happening is you're being insulted for looking like a follower of Jesus Christ. I, you're being insulted. It's almost like as a kid when you're told, like, man, do you look like your daddy? And then as a kid, you're like, oh, that's the worst thing you could say. Let me, your dad must look like a troll or something. That's a horrible, how could you say that to me? It's like, whoa, whoa, that's not supposed to be an insult. It's a great thing. Sorry, did the troll thing offend you? You all acted a little uncomfortable when I said troll. Is that a new PC word I'm not supposed to use? All right. Are you all trolls? No, I'm just um, this isn't a bad thing to be told that you look like him. Don't be ashamed by that. So Acts chapter 5, the apostles, the early church, you're talking three, four chapters into the, 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 the history of the early church. 
and you've got the apostles out doing the work of the gospel, the ministry of the gospel in Acts chapter 5. They are arrested. They are thrown into jail. And they're going to be taken care of the next day. That night, an angel of the Lord comes, releases them from jail, and tells them to go do the ministry of the gospel. So they go back into the town square, and they begin to do the ministry of the gospel. And the, the rulers of the time say, okay, go, go to prison and check on the apostles. And when they go to check on the apostles, they're not there anymore. They, they come back, and they're not there. And they find out they're creating this huge hubbub in the town square. And they're preaching the ministry of the gospel, and, and things are happening, and people are believing, and all this amazing stuff's happening, and they arrest them, but this time it's more, instead of the arrest, like, you put your hands behind your back and drag them away, because of the crowd, it's more like, hey, would you guys mind coming with us, please? Just keep it on the DL so that the crowd doesn't get whipped up into a frenzy, and they, they bring them in before the, the uh, Sanhedrin, the, the, the governing council at the time, and the, the Sanhedrin begins making accusations against them, and this is where that very popular statement from the apostle is, listen, if, if you talk to us, that's fine, but we must obey God, not man, right? And so, and so then the, um, Gamaliel, one of the members of the Sanhedrin, pulls everybody else aside from the council and says, guys, listen, if this movement that these fellows are leading, if this is a movement of man, it's going to fail. But if this is a movement of God, first of all, you're not going to be able to stop it. Secondly, you don't want to be on the other side of this. And so the Sanhedrin decides they're not going to keep them in jail. They're just going to beat them and release them. I'm not sure how that was a win, but it was a win. And you know what the apostles did after that? Acts chapter 5, verse 41 says this, Then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. They weren't ashamed. They were rejoicing. Now, now, he does tell us if you are being um, treated harshly um, for other things, verse 15, like murder, being a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler, well, there should be shame there. But if you're suffering for bearing his name, don't be ashamed. Don't be surprised. He tells us instead to rejoice. Verse 13, instead rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ, that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. He tells you to uh, rejoice because your present joy is going to be turned into super joy when, when the pain is removed and his glory is revealed to us. When, when you are finished being refined like pure gold that has gone through the fire. Paul in Romans understands this. It says, starting in Romans 5, verse 3, and not only that, we boast in our afflictions. Because we know affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character. Proven character produces hope. And this hope will not disappoint us. Because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So what, 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 uh, what Paul was trying to communicate is that there is a purifying effect in our lives that this suffering may bring. Uh, he, he says, Peter says this here, excuse me, in verse 14, he says, if you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Not only is it having this purifying effect in your life, but, but, but God himself isn't just watching you from a distance as you try to navigate through it. God isn't sitting on his throne in heaven like, wow, I hope he pulls this one off. It says God himself is resting 
on you as you suffer. You can rejoice because the, the suffering is, is, and persecution really is God constantly at work in us and knowing that he is going to keep us to the last day. But he also says not, not just rejoice, but also glorify him. Glorify him. If anyone suffers, verse 16, as a Christian, let him uh, not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. Now listen, it doesn't mean suffering. Is, it's not like somebody begins to persecute you. You're like, yes! It doesn't mean that, that you don't um, cry or weep. I have a heart that's broken. It doesn't mean you skip down the street rejoicing that somebody just murdered your character. What it does mean is that in the middle of that difficulty, that suffering, you should stop for just a few moments, breathe, and consider how in this moment you can make God bigger. And it's probably said poorly. Because you can't make God bigger. He is the omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, majestic, never-changing God. How could you make him bigger? So maybe a better way to say it is you need to stop for a moment in the middle of your suffering and your persecution, breathe, and figure out how you can be a better telescope for God. See, a, te a telescope takes things that are, are far away, and it brings it really close so that we can study it, examine it, see its beauty, right? Maybe a picture will help. So the way we get to see Jupiter is we walk out in the parking lot one night. You look up in the sky and there's Jupiter. At least that's what they, Google told me. I have no idea if that's actually Jupiter. It's, it could just be a brighter star. I don't know. But that's the point. From a distance... I can, I can see, you know, it's a little brighter, okay. I mean, it really depends on where in the night sky it is, all that good stuff, I know, I know, but, but okay, that, that could probably be Jupiter. But then through the lens of the Hubble telescope, just this year, this picture was taken of Jupiter. Okay, that looks very different than this. I can enjoy the colors, I can enjoy... The crazy waviness. I can even see one of Jupiter's moons. So what the telescope does is it brings it down so I can look and better understand what it is that's actually there. In the middle of your suffering, stop, breathe, and find ways that you can be a telescope to those who are around you. That's what it means that in the middle of your suffering, they may stop and ask you about the hope that lies within you. Because what they're seeing is different than what they've ever seen before. Suddenly there are nuances and colors and shapes. Suddenly there is a character and a hope oozing from you that they haven't seen in anybody else before. In the middle of your suffering, be a telescope. How? Well, that was what verse 19 was all about. Verse 19 tells us, So then let us who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to the faithful creator while doing what is good. How can we be an effective telescope to those around us by understanding that where we are right now is not an accident? The suffering we may be enduring right now isn't because of the irresistible force of blind fate. This is something you've been called to. God's will in this moment. 
And so Peter says, trust the faithful creator. He's used this word a number of times. I've defined it the same way each time. I'm going to add a little bit to it today, maybe clarify it even more. The idea of entrusting or trusting or committing is to give yourself, to give your situation into the hands of another to keep or to care for you. It's a, it's a parenting term. So which one of you do I trust with my child? Which one of you would I be willing to leave my small infant with to care for in my absence? That's what it means to trust, to entrust, to commit. It's also a banking term. It means to go, not a lot of us go to the bank anymore with the deposit slips, but you go to the bank and you use the deposit slip and you hand them your money and it goes into your account and you walk away. Now, different days, I guess, but at some point you would walk away from the bank like, all right, that's safe. Never have to worry about it again. It's that entrusting. It's that handing over. It's taking God at his word because he's been faithful. He promises to be faithful. We're in, this is corny, we're in good hands. Does that sound like a commercial or what? But we are. We're in the best hands. We're in the hands of, a, of an all-loving and faithful God who has cared for us from the very beginning of time. And through any and all tough times, he can be trusted. Please don't fall for the lie. Don't fall for the lie that Christians are protected from persecution, suffering, hardship, disease, even death. Don't, don't fall for that lie. We talked about that in the last couple of weeks. That, that lie has done huge harm to people who are trying to follow Jesus Christ. Because the moment that something goes sideways in their life, they begin to accuse God of not being faithful to his promise. God is faithful to his promise. It's just you listened to something that wasn't his promise. Don't fall for the lie. Get a reality check. And that reality check is this. Our greatest joy and good can't be defined by a life without difficulty. There has to be more. It can't just be about easy breezy. It can't just be about simplicity in living. It can't just be about a full bank account and perfect health. It can't be about this nuclear family that never has any trouble. It can't be because those things don't exist. They're lies that are promoted to try to make you think they exist. So that can't be where our joy is found. So what I want to do this morning is I close it up and try to anchor your hope and encourage your soul is I want you to take your Bibles and I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. When you look at Hebrews 11, what you find is a group of people who have taken God at his word and have found joy in the middle of the most difficult times. Hebrews 11 is known as the, the faith chapter. This is the hall of faith. All these men and women who are listed here had demonstrated incredible amounts of faith in their lives. And we certainly don't have time to go through each and every one, but it is a fascinating study to walk through Hebrews 11. So, so you got verse 4, you got Abel. Abel demonstrated incredible faith by offering to God exactly what God had asked him to offer. He took God at his word and he obeyed him completely. Enoch, verse 5, was taken away. Verse 7, Noah 
Noah is an incredible picture of faith. Noah um, was warned about, I love the way this is said in the CSB, warned about what was not yet seen. God showed up to Noah and said, it's about to flood. Water is going to come from the sky. Noah had never seen that before, and yet he still obeyed God and built the boat that allowed them to live. Abraham was called out of his home country, not knowing where he was going. Verse 11, Sarah herself considered God to, to, to be faithful when he promised that she would have a son. Skip it down to verse 17. It goes back to Abraham. Abraham was, was, was confident that God would come through in the end as he offered his son Isaac as a sacrifice. And then Hebrews 11 tells us that as Abraham climbed the mountain with Isaac to, to, to sacrifice Isaac on top of the mountain, Abraham's mind, uh, Abraham's thoughts, Abraham believed that because God had promised that his seed would be blessed through Isaac, that if God had also called him to sacrifice Isaac, those weren't conflicting things. That meant that he was going to sacrifice Isaac and God was going to raise him from the dead. You get down Moses. Moses and the children of Israel are a picture of believing God in the middle of the greatest difficulty. They believed God when he said, take the blood of that lamb and spread it on the doorposts so the death angel would pass over. He believed God in that moment. He believed God by taking that first step into the Red Sea. Which one of you would have done that? Which one of you would have been like, I want to go first. It's really cool to see the water built up on the sides here. But in the middle of that difficulty, Moses went. Joshua with Jericho, weird battle plan. Believed God, but it worked. Verse 32, Hebrews chapter 11. It's almost the author of Hebrews is a preacher because he's like, listen, I don't have time. What more can I say? Time's way too short for me to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. And then he goes through, he says, listen to what these people accomplished by faith. They conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength in weakness, became mighty in battle, put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Think about the faith of these people. Of course they were filled with joy. God delivered them every time, right? Wrong. Continue. Other people were tortured, not accepting release so that they might gain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings, as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they died by the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins, in goatskins, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. not worthy of them. Did they do something wrong? There is your reality, Jeff. They were commended for their faith. Here's your reality check. I love, I love those verses 32 through the beginning of 35. It's like, yeah, they, they quenched the raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword. They shut the mouths of lions. I love that picture. Isn't that a cool picture? That's strength, right? I can shut the mouths of lions. 
reality check, most of you are going to run from lions, not shut the mouths of lions. Is God still faithful then? Or have you defined God's faithfulness based on your comfort? Based on easy? See, see these all took God at his word. These held nothing back, even when it got difficult, even when it meant exclusion, even when it meant persecution, even, even when it meant death. Was God enough in that moment? Was God enough in that moment? Hebrews 11, let's read verses 13 to 16. These all died in faith. Although they had not received the things that were promised, but they saw them from a distance, greeted them, and confessed. They were just foreigners and temporary residents here on earth. Now those who say such things make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they were thinking about where they came from, they would have an opportunity to return. But they now desire a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Look at this, the, the, the idea of taking God at his word, what, what is that? It's anchoring in what God has done for you. Nothing else. Not anchoring in the American dream. Not anchoring in the ease of life. Anchoring in what God has done for you. That's what he says. He has prepared a city for you. You know what God has done for you? You were a sinner, separated from God, and unable to do anything about that separation. You had this huge gulf between you and God, and you were hopeless, helpless, and lost. God loved you. And Jesus Christ showed up. And he lived a life you couldn't live of perfection. Fulfilling God's law in completion. And then willingly took the nails in his hands and feet to pay for your sin. Not his. Yours. And as a result, what he did is he took his righteousness, his perfection in the law, and he put it on your account. So that one day he might present you blameless and faultless before the throne of God. That one day you might walk into the throne room of God and Jesus will look at the Father and say, that one's mine. I got him. You want to know what taking God at his word looks like? It looks like anchoring in what he has done for you. It means understanding that God sees things you don't. It's believing that God is worthy to be trusted no matter how difficult the situation. It's trusting that if something was really better for you, God would give it to you. When we desire those things more than we desire anything in the world, what I mean by those things is I mean taking God at his word, allowing your greatest desire in life to be drinking in all that God has provided for you, even the difficult things. If that is the thing you desire more than anything else, you want to hear something amazing? You ready? <laughs> this is goosebumpy for me. I'm going to butcher it, and you guys will be like, what was that? But I'm going to... When you make your desire the things that he has provided for you, 
Make those your primary goal, the primary thing you pursue. God is proud of you. (laughs) Can you wrap your head around that just for a second? God is proud of you. Man, I tell you what, when my mom or dad ever said they were proud of me, I could run through a wall. My wife, there's one particular time in our marriage, I mean, she said it a few more times, I think, Um, but there's one time where she, she whispered to me, proud of you. Dude, I could have overthrown Iraq myself. When the God who created you knows you, purchased you, sent his son to die for you when you didn't deserve it, looks at you and says, I am not ashamed of that one. They now desire a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. My God looks at me even in the height of my weakness and says, that one, he's killing it. When you desire him more than easy, when you desire the smile on his face more than comfort, when what drives you is his acceptance, not anybody else's acceptance, but his acceptance, as big, as difficult, as painful, as hard, as frustrating, as as heartbreaking as this life can be, there's hope. Because the one who is purifying you, who is walking with you, who loves you with immeasurable love, is the one who is not ashamed to be your God when you take him at his word. Believer, lover of Jesus, as hard as it might be, as often as you struggle, your victory's already been secured. God's not ashamed of you. Live in hope. Father, thank you for the hope we have. Thank you that we are not in this race alone, trying to do it ourselves. Father, I thank you that that, that you tell us that because of our relationship with Jesus Christ, that that we live out of victory. We don't don't live out of our best efforts, our best energy. Father, we, we, we live because of Jesus Christ, because he lives. Father, please, Please take the one this morning who is struggling and wrestling, even with their own obedience to you. Not not exactly the focus of the morning, but but, but God, I pray in this moment they would be reminded that in Jesus Christ, they are forgiven. I pray for the one who doesn't know Christ, that in this moment they might yield themselves to him. They might bow their knee and trust him as Savior. God, we know suffering's coming. For some of us, we've already experienced it. We know difficulty lies around the corner. I pray that we would be faithful and willing servants who would entrust ourselves into your capable hands, knowing that you have always been faithful, you will always be faithful, and so we can trust in you. So Lord, we we rely on you, we lean into you, and in this moment, I pray, I pray that you would remind us of how good we've got it. It's in the name of Christ I pray, amen.